Welcome to episode 24. Today's conversation is with Chris Stewart, the founder at SureBits. SureBits is helping to build financial applications and financial markets on the Bitcoin protocol. And one of the ways they're doing that is by helping to build the discrete log contract or DLC specification on Bitcoin. Now, if you don't know what any of that means, that's fine, because in our conversation, Chris and I discussed exactly what DLCs are, what oracles are, how they're being used today, and what some potential future applications for DLCs and oracles might look like when the smart contract technology is more widely adopted and is available for everyone to use on the Bitcoin protocol. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to give a quick shout out to all the listeners who sent in sats uh, in the last episode. I asked you all to send in sats that reflect the value that you got out of the show. And you guys came through with one of the biggest days I've ever had on the show. Uh, In the last 24 hours, I've received over 50,000 sats from listeners. Thank you all for sending in these sats. Uh, and, And I hope this can continue to be a good barometer. We've now set the bar for, you know, the value that you guys are getting out of this show. And I'd love to continue to track that, the number of sats you send in as a good metric or as a, as a rough guideline for whether or not you guys are getting value out of this show. So if you are, the best way you can show me that is by going to a a podcasting 2.0 app. Fountain is my favorite one to use. um, And sending in sats that reflect the value that you got out of this episode. Um, You can also send in comments and questions. I get to every single comment and every single question at the end of the show in the lightning round uh, presented by Voltage. Again, quick shout out to Voltage. They are the sponsor of today's episode. Uh, They are the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning node infrastructure. And we will have more from Voltage later in the show in the lightning round. Hope you enjoy the episode. Chris, thank you for joining me today on the show. I'm really excited to chat with you about DLCs, oracles, sure bits. But to start things off, how about we start with your background in Bitcoin and about why you decided to start sure bits? Yeah, um, my background in Bitcoin, uh, I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013. Um, The price was going up at the time. I was in college. I was like, oh, what is this cool new thing? I was really interested in um, kind of TradFi and the intersection between uh, technology and finance, like high frequency trading stuff. Um, Understood that that was a big time walled garden and very hard to get into as just a, a lowly college student. And then came across this alternative, which is Bitcoin, which was open to anybody to mess with at any point in time. If you're a college student like I was at the time, you can pull down the source code and start building applications off of it, you know, from, from day one. And that was really attractive to somebody like me that didn't wasn't necessarily connected with the financial or technology world for that matter. It's this kind of, you know, permissionless innovation that we always all talk we all talk about in the, the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And I guess I've been a Bitcoin developer ever since. Uh, software engineering is my uh, uh, formal training, I guess. And I've been uh, working on lightning applications, discrete log contract applications, and also some actual Bitcoin core development in there as well along the way. And, uh, you know, the industry's changed quite a bit since I first got into it. And I never imagined it would grow to be, um, you know, what what we have sitting in front of us today. And the, the, the I guess, success you'd say the industry's had, which has been really cool to see. Right. 
So between you've worked on Bitcoin, you've worked on lighting applications, you, you've, you've worked in many different areas of the industry. What was it that made you decide to say, I'm going to start a company now, specifically this company and not, I'm, I'm going to do this over maybe building on Bitcoin or, or on lightning. Well, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the rationale for when I started shirt bits in 2015 was, um, I had worked a normal job at an insurance company at the time thought, Hey, like we need insurance for Bitcoin. Right. So I was like, Oh, let's start a company that solves the insurance for Bitcoin problem. And again, this is 2015 timeframe. It's still embedded in the name shirt bits. It's, uh, it's supposed to be a pun on insured bits, uh, or insured Bitcoin. And, um, that that's, you know, where we got started and we raised some venture capital from a uh, boost VC and Tim Draper out in Silicon Valley. And the rationale for why to do this is I just thought Bitcoin was going to be a growing industry that uh, could have, you know, worldwide impacts. And I want to get a piece of the pie in whatever way, shape or form, you know, I can and uh, be influential in that space. And um, that, that that was the primary motivations for me getting, you know, involved in Bitcoin at the time and also just the as a, a technical person, the uh, lack of understanding of how this stuff actually works was also another motivator there because opportunistically, uh, it seems that, you know, people with a very, you know, technical software engineering heavy skill set should be able to do well in this space since this is all open source code that anybody can play with at any point in time. And that's kind of where my psychology was at the time of starting bits. That's really interesting. So it was insurance on Bitcoin that was the kind yeah. of driver at the time. Uh, how has that evolved over the last seven years now? Well, insurance on Bitcoin is very hard. We know we're still going through hacks to this day. Um, the insurance you know, industry is starting to write policies for Bitcoin, but we were well ahead of our time and did not have the capital required to um, you know, get, get, get that uh, kind of product across the finish line. So we pivoted to uh, you know, more of my roots, which is the technical background and uh, you know, worked on a Bitcoin open source library called Bitcoin S, and we use that to kind of build all of our product offerings off of now, including the discrete log contract stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the industry is night and day from what it was seven years ago, a lot more legitimate players in the space these days compared to kind of fly by the night uh, operations that we saw at that time. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in specific that surprised you from, from 2015 to 2022, seeing the technical development of Bitcoin and, and some of the new smart contract applications being built. What were some of those surprising moments for you? Well, I, you know, I think um, one of, so I, I think if I had to go back and get in my head from 2015, I was very much in the headspace that, you know, Bitcoin's the one true only coin and there won't be competitors to Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, people will, uh, just build on top of Bitcoin for their applications. And, you know, the kind of uh, 2020 is hindsight sort of situation as we sit here today. It's like, even if the technical uh, platform that you can build off of Bitcoin offered all the tools that you could ever want as a developer, there still is this, um, you know, perverse incentive to always off offer new tokens for whoever will buy it for people that want to make profit, right? And uh, We've seen that, you know, ever even back when in 2015 that was happening in Bitcoin and it's only kind of become more rampant uh, recently. The incentive in the space is to always create a new blockchain, issue a new token for that blockchain and create your own platform rather than trying to coalesce around a single platform like Bitcoin to build off of and uh, try and gain network effects of the underlying um, 
you know, underlying currency, Bitcoin in this case, uh, I, I guess have those have those network effects like trickle down to the actual currency itself. And we haven't seen that play out. And, you know, there's million, uh, maybe not millions, but a ton of tokens. Everybody's doing a new blockchain and uh, trying to be, you know, faster than the previous generation of blockchains. Like we had Ethereum 2016, you know, is when it was really starting to get uh, popular. And, uh, you know, that was going to be the end all be all of blockchains at the time. And here we sit in 2022 and we have things like Solana, who is, you know, thinks Ethereum's a dinosaur and, uh, you know, uh, Amin Gunsire's project, same, same story. And, you know, I, I don't know when that dance stops, but uh, still going alive and well now. And I don't know if I directly answered your question now that I think about it. Apologies. Oh, all good. That's that's a fascinating kind of like segue because I, I also see that that same issue. Um, and I wonder, do you think that we eventually get to a point where everything that is being done on smart contract, other smart contract uh, blockchains, platforms, whatever you want to call it, it can be done on Bitcoin? Um, well, it, I, I would say not no in the current Bitcoin incarnation. And I can give you an example of something that's not possible on Bitcoin today that, uh, you know, is very popular on other blockchains. And that's like, you know, the Uniswap style automated market makers. Um, one thing that I hope to, uh, bring to Bitcoin someday is the ability to host a market on uh, Bitcoin directly. And the reason for doing this is, uh, you know, people commonly talk about is talk about Bitcoin as censorship resistant money. And if you can host a market on Bitcoin, that brings censorship resistant financial markets using the censorship resistant money. And I think that's a super compelling use case that we should be thinking about is Bitcoiners and has been done on other blockchain platforms. It's one of the main selling selling points for these things. And um, since we're talking about, you know, old 2015 ideas, um, this is a very old idea of copying things that work in other blockchains and bringing them back over to Bitcoin. Um, Blockstream, the company um, w- which I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of, uh, what the original founding idea was the sidechains white paper. And the idea with sidechains was like, hey, let's go over to other blockchains, implement a new feature, see if it blows up the blockchain or if it's you know popular at all, if it has traction as a product. If it does have traction, it is popular and it's secure to bring back over to Bitcoin, let's bring it back into the Bitcoin main chain. And um, that seems to be an idea that's not as popular in you know 2022 as we're recording this podcast compared to uh, the 2015-2016 era of, uh, you know, Bitcoin developers wanting to try things out and, uh, you know, bring the successful things over to Bitcoin, ditch the things that aren't successful on that, uh, you know, other blockchain and let them die and let Bitcoin become the one true, you know, kind of internet currency and uh, platform to build financial applications off of. And um, hopefully we can find that, uh, find the will to do that. But I don't know if it's there today in Bitcoin's ecosystem, developer ecosystem specifically. What do you think needs to change in the developer ecosystem? Do you think the developer ecosystem just, we need more developers, we need um, more experimentation? What are some of those constraints or fundamental issues that we have to get past? Well, I think it's some of it's a culture thing. And uh, no, this isn't all bad. Like, let's uh, let's, let's look at the, um, um, 
let's uh, what, what's the word? Let's steel man their arguments. The uh, the people that don't want to change Bitcoin and. Uh, there, there is some merit to this argument, right? If you change Bitcoin, you're inherently introducing risk, which means that something could go bad and then maybe Bitcoin altogether fails. And that's very scary and something that none of us want. Um, so if you follow that line of thought, well, it's like, well, let's never change Bitcoin then. So nothing ever changes and Bitcoin will you know, just exist forever. And maybe that's enough for Bitcoin to do is, you know, uh, fill that role of digital gold. Uh, censorship resistant money that bitcoiners commonly talk about uh these days um i would like to have my cake and eat it too if possible i'd like bitcoin to be the censorship resistant money along with you know being capable of hosting financial applications directly on top of it assuming that those financial applications aren't parasitic to the underlying blockchain and uh that's where really the rub is at mm, interesting can you can you explain some of the Maybe on a high level, like what would some of those changes to Bitcoin be in order to get censorship resistant markets on directly on Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, you you would need some way to deploy like a market that is represented by a UTXO on, on the Bitcoin network. Um, and that just means it's for at a very high level you can think of it as it's just represented by a bitcoin address and you trade against that bitcoin address you um yeah you you, you trade against that bitcoin address is how to think about it bitcoin does require you know um the ability to uh um i guess trying to keep it high level host that market and that's something that's that's lacking today in bitcoin's uh technical world compared to things like, you know, Ethereum that allow you to deploy these markets natively to the blockchain. And um, that's, yeah, I mean, it, it, there also is like fundamental architecture differences between a blockchain like Ethereum and a blockchain like Bitcoin. That's the UTXO versus account model. Um, I don't know if we want to go too far uh, down the rabbit hole to explain what the difference between the two are, but it's just important to note that, um, uh, yeah, Bitcoin UTX, the Bitcoin's architecture is just fundamentally different than Ethereum's architecture, which makes it a little bit more tricky to uh, build things like markets on top of. And maybe we would have to, I don't know if we would have to fundamentally rethink Bitcoin's architecture to host some of these markets. But I think it's an interesting design space that, design space that I would like to see the... Um, the Bitcoin developer community uh, takes seriously as a problem worth solving because I don't even think we're at the point where they think it's a problem worth solving. I think it's more of uh, the, the current sentiment in the Bitcoin developer ecosystem is like Bitcoin's digital gold is never going to be anything more. So stop trying. Mm, right. Okay. So now in order to get this new smart contract functionality on Bitcoin, I know there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of terms here that yeah. uh, listeners may not be familiar with, or maybe have heard and just don't quite understand how they work. Um, so a lot of this is going to involve oracles, uh, DLCs. Um, we can get into Schnorr signatures, some of that as well. Um, but maybe it makes sense to start off with oracles. Can you give a high level explanation of what they are and why they are kind of an integral component in enabling some of the smart contract functionality? Yeah, so the, the problem that Oracle solve is a network like Bitcoin doesn't have any idea of things that are going on in the real world. And uh, the example that I give to people is like, 
Bitcoin doesn't know uh, who won the last presidential election. Bitcoin doesn't know who won the Super Bowl or the World Cup in soccer. Bitcoin doesn't even know what the Bitcoin market price is. Like Bitcoin is just totally oblivious to all this um, information that occurs off chain in the, uh, you know, the rest of the digital uh, world or in the analog world for that matter as well. And that means we, we need to build some sort of bridge between the digital, you know, the wider digital world and uh, Bitcoin itself. And the way you do this is with an Oracle. An Oracle says, I'm going to tell you the answer to a problem at, you know, a certain date and time in the future. And an example of that is like, I will tell you who won the Super Bowl on February 3rd, 2022. 2020, uh, 2022, can't speak today, um, or I will tell you what the Tesla stock price is on June 1st, 2022. And you can take that Oracle information and do interesting things with it. But the, the problem, the, the, the key thing that the Oracle is doing is relaying information from the, uh, the rest of the world uh, into the Bitcoin blockchain so people can build smart contracts off of it. And is this always a future uh price or a future event? It, it does have to be a future price or future event, assuming that you want to build a Bitcoin smart contract uh, based off of it. It's not really interesting to, you know, build a, a, a Bitcoin smart contract off a Super Bowl that happened 20 years ago because, well, we know the answer to that. Like, there's no speculative value here. Like, you know, let's move on with our lives or, you know, what the Tesla stock price was 10 years ago. Well, you know, it might be interesting for some historical analysis, but building and deploying live contracts contingent on that, uh, you know, old Tesla stock price just isn't something that, uh, you know, is, is worthwhile. So it is required to be a future event. Right. Okay. And so that, that enables these predictions and it enables like uh, figuring out what the value of something might be in the future. Um, I know oracles play a really important role in checking asset prices, uh, specifically on, on other chains right now, like in a lot of DeFi and stablecoin projects, oracles are a very important piece to make sure you know what the price of an asset is um, and constantly kind of checking the real world value of something. Um, do you think that oracles on Bitcoin will start to eat into some of this functionality that you see on other DeFi and stablecoin projects? I think... Um... Yes, I do think it will for um, different reasons, though. I think the very attractive thing about what we see on other blockchain ecosystems is the fact that the market is literally on the blockchain that you can go and trade against 24-7. This is the censorship-resistant financial markets idea I was talking about earlier. Um, however, there still is value for oracles on Bitcoin, just kind of in a different lane. Um, you can build these very private smart contracts between two individuals and uh, settle you know, the, the bet privately rather than having it broadcast publicly across um, you know, the entire blockchain for uh, like, like you see on other blockchain ecosystems. So if, if you care more about privacy and you have your uh, counterparty lined up, Bitcoin oracles make a lot of sense to use. If you don't care about privacy and you don't have a counterparty lined up, uh, you you might find more value in other uh, blockchain ecosystems currently. How are oracles structured? Like, is there just one oracle everyone's using in Bitcoin? 
Uh, are there many of them? How are they pulling data from the real world? I'd love to dig into that a bit more. Yeah, so anybody can be an Oracle on Bitcoin. Um, we have an application that you can go download to become an Oracle. It's called Crystal Bowl. Um, it's just a nice little standalone desktop application. Or if you have an Umbral node by chance, you can install Crystal Bowl there as well. And it's just, you know it's just a simple little application. You put in an event name, for instance, what's the Tesla stock price going to be on uh, June first, twenty twenty two, twenty twenty two. And then you go share your Oracle information, your announcement information uh, widely throughout uh, you know, the rest of the ecosystem so people can build bets contingent on your Oracle. And we have a tool uh, available to share your Oracle information with uh, today. It's called the Oracle Explorer and it's available at oracle.sharedbits.com. If you go to that site, you can see a list of Oracles, uh, betting, uh, published about all sorts of things like sporting events, financial market prices, uh, like weird things like is a certain block heights last bit one or zero, you know, just did Elon Musk attend Austin bit devs, you know, there's just all sorts of like random uh, things that people have put on there and are betting on. And uh, I encourage your listeners to go uh, if they want concrete examples of what oracles look like, go to oracle.shirtbits.com and scroll through the site and you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Interesting. So, so I can go today and use Crystal Bull, and I can be an oracle for an event and say like, who's going to win the NBA Finals, and I can host that, and and that all of a sudden goes onto your Oracle Explorer, and anyone can bet on that. Is that correct? yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, last weekend, for instance, uh, you know, we're recording this on February twenty eighth, and uh, last weekend I was doing Twitter bets for folks based on. Uh, soccer matches and i don't even know who the oracle is the oracle's name is carante i don't know if you speak spanish or not i don't, I don't. um it, the oracle's name is carante and they've been publishing a bunch of fifa matches on our oracle explorer sorry i don't even know if it's fifa you know how that's how little i know about soccer is i don't even know what the league's name is but it's like real madrid and um uh, uh barcelona was on there and like i was doing bets using this carante oracle who i don't know uh, to uh, you know, bet on these soccer matches with a couple buddies of mine. So um, that's yeah, that's available today. You could go find them, and uh, you know, if you wanted to pub publish an NBA Finals uh, Oracle, people might bet on that too. So um, yeah, yeah, anybody can do this today. Very cool. So if I if I go ahead and do this, if I publish an Oracle today on the NBA Finals, what is the incentive? What is maybe forcing me to publish the correct result? Is there, could I say, no, actually this team won, even though they didn't? Yes, you absolutely can. And this is, you know, kind of the Oracle problem in general with um, any, any sort of ecosystem that's dependent upon Oracles. You are trusting the Oracle to tell the truth. And there's not no way I'm aware of to get around that. Uh, it's very important if you're doing things based on Oracles that you're using a trustworthy Oracle, because that is where you're placing your trust in the system. In Bitcoin, we have some mitigations for that trust. Like for instance, the Oracle doesn't know that you're using them unless you choose to reveal yourself. Um, and also we can do multi-Oracle stuff. So it isn't just one Oracle, but maybe you're relying on three Oracles attesting to the NBA finals. And if one of them goes AWOL or crazy, um, you've still got the other two to fall back on, almost kind of like it's a, you know, a multi-sig Oracle situation. And is there an incentive, like a financial incentive for me as an Oracle publisher 
to do the right thing? Like, do I lose funds if I publish the incorrect result and other this, oracles say this is the correct result and you're wrong? Th this is um, an active area of research, I would say. Um, when we first built out discrete log contracts, we were super excited about this idea of being able to slash people's funds if the oracle lied. However, um, thinking about it in a little bit more of an adversarial context uh, from a security point of view, uh, it's very hard to make sure the Oracle doesn't spend its money from this address right before uh, they go and publish the lie. So there's kind of this uh, chicken and the egg problem of uh, are they going to lie first? Or are they going to spend their money that they staked and then lie, which is what they would probably realistically do. So there isn't there isn't any way right now to penalize an Oracle if they do lie. The reason we've built the Oracle Explorer, though, is to track the Oracle over long periods of time. So we can at least get some heuristics about like how quickly do they publish their um, attestation saying who won the NBA finals? Did they publish the right attestation or was it wrong? And uh, building up metrics over the long term to make sure that uh, um, you know, this Oracle's been good so far for its history, or maybe this Oracle's lied in the past and you should use those, um, use that data to, uh, pick an Oracle intelligently. Because again, if you pick a bad Oracle, you're going to have a bad time in Bitcoin or in any other blockchain ecosystem. And that's kind of a fundamental limitation of the system. Right. So, um, you're checking to see if the Oracles did the right thing. But, but that again, that would be using your data, right? Like you could go back and say, hey, they were incorrect about the Super Bowl winner. Um, but that would then put another level of trust on you, right? Well, I mean, if, if you go look at the Oracle Explorer site at oracle.shirtbits.com, you know, it's publicly available information to see what they attested to. So in, this, in the Super Bowl case, um, who was it? I think it was like the Rams and... Uh, somebody else this year, Rams and Bengals. Let's say the Oracle, you know, said the Bengals won and, you know, in reality, the Rams won. Well, it's going to be pretty apparent to anybody on the site that this Oracle lied. Like they said that Cincinnati won and there's not really any checking done on the Sherdbit side. It's just the lie is super self-evident in this case. Uh, maybe in the numeric case, you could, uh, you know, lie by a couple dollars or something and that would be hard to harder to tell from just like, you know, eyeballing it. Um, but, you know, all this stuff can be automated and isn't uh, proprietary to us either. Other services can check these oracles that they want to for accuracy and um, reliability. Right. And so you're in a way you're kind of like trying to build a reputation system. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I, an oracle is trustworthy. I kind of think of it like, you know, Amazon with their like third party vendors is like, they have like the star system, right. And you're probably less likely to um, order from somebody with lower stars than you are from somebody that has a bunch of stars. And then maybe you see the customer reviews section too, and you read through those and that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable about this, uh, seller on Amazon. And I, I think the same uh, kind of tools apply with Oracle's discrete log contracts as well as, you know, just uh, monitor the long-term performance of the Oracle. There's no way you can prevent against a big rug pull um, if the Oracle does want to throw away all that reputation, but we can make it expensive to them in a reputational context and, uh, you know, ban them after that or discourage users from using them so they can't do it again. Right. What was some of the reasoning behind not going after the slashing um, 
strategy where, where you actually have like a financial disincentive because we do have Bitcoin as this financial yeah. tool where we could say, you know, yes, you're going to lose reputation, but you're also going to lose financial value. Well, yeah. So like, let's, let's walk through it. So like, say I'm an Oracle, right? And, uh, you know, I want people to trust me and I tell my users, I'm going to put one Bitcoin up, uh, for stake and you can slash this one Bitcoin if you find me lying. Uh, so I deposit the one Bitcoin into the address and then, uh, you know, I publish an attestation or sorry, publish an Oracle about uh, the NBA finals on June 1st or whatever it is. Um, we wait for June 1st to come around and let's just say it's like the uh, Los Angeles Lakers versus the New York Knicks in the NBA Finals. Uh, LeBron wins uh, wins the championship, but me as the Oracle, I'm going to lie and say the New York Knicks won the, the championship. Well, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to lie. I know that in advance. Why wouldn't I just spend my Bitcoin that I control in this address that I staked uh, before I publish the lie? And that's a really hard... Um, problem to solve for is like, how do you make sure that the Oracle doesn't just uh, steal, you know, not steal, but spend the money that they staked before they go and lie about whatever, uh, you know, whatever they're attesting to this case in the NBA finals. And there isn't a very clean way to go about that uh, currently. And, you know, we're more than open to ideas for how to solve this problem, but we haven't come up with a good solution yet. Mm, okay, I see. So the Oracle is always kind of in control of those staked funds. Um, and I guess, is there is there a way to do this through a, a multi-stake in, in a way that maybe the Oracle does not have full control and, and therefore they wouldn't be able to spend that in advance? You know, th 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 there might be a way to do that. Um, for instance, like maybe we could be, a, a, you know, have a key in the multi-sig uh, wallet that the Oracle's using, and then um, they got to go get in contact with us to withdraw the stake or something, or maybe there's something clever that could be done to um, uh, make the, yeah, make the Oracle not be able to spend until the event is over or something like that. And that might uh, um, solve some of those problems. But frankly, all of our brain power has been spent on like getting the wallet stuff out there right now. And, you know, you only got so many hours in the day. Fair. Do you yeah. think it's do you think it's a killer feature? Like it would be very nice to have and make you feel better about uh, at DLCs or where, where's your head at? Should, I, I should think, we be yeah. thinking about it more? When you describe the way in which like you lose reputation, but you don't necessarily lose financial value, and that there's like always this ability for someone to kind of pull the rug on you. Um, I mean, I guess that's true in a lot of things in life. Like a lot of the reputation people build up over time there is a potential, there's a small chance that, you know, someone pulls the rug and, and just kind of like goes against what they've, they've built up in their reputation. Um, it's highly unlikely, but uh, I, I think it would, I think it would be a, um, a benefit to have some kind of financial incentive as well to, to make sure that the person who's uh, making this result um, or solidifying the result is telling the truth. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to approach that. Um, but I, I, it would make me more comfortable, I'd say. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's super useful input. And like, you know, we, we have, um, you know, th this is like part of the reason we've kind of built the multi Oracle stuff is to, uh, you know, avoid having the single point of failure that, uh, 
um, an Oracle represents. So again, it would be, you know, two single points of failure rather than one single point of failure. And ideally you could scale that up to, you know, 10 Oracles, a hundred Oracles, or, you know, some large amount of Oracles and, uh, um, hope that they all uh, come to consensus on what the actual event is and they're not all lying. But I mean, you can always draw up scenarios in your head where all these people are colluding together or they're all the same person, maybe hiding behind pseudonyms online. And uh, uh, the money, the staking part, though, you know, if you're putting money up, that does cost something to create an identity, which makes the system harder to game. So I, I do, I guess, understand the attractiveness of that. And you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, one of your listeners can come contribute to the DLC open source specification and uh, propose uh, solutions to this problem. Because, you know, this is all open source uh, collaborative process. And uh, it is a problem worth solving in my mind. It's just we have not solved it yet. We need uh, brilliant other contributors to come along and think about this. Fair enough. Okay, so so now that we have a high level understanding of oracles, let's go into DLCs and discuss exactly what they are and why they're important in, in the broader picture here. Yeah, so discrete log contracts were invented by a guy uh, named Taj Dryja right around uh, 2018. Um, what they do is allow you to build Bitcoin smart contracts contingent on the oracles that we were just talking about. So going back to our NBA finals example, um, we can build a Bitcoin smart contract that uh, you know, will send me uh, one Bitcoin when the NBA Finals is over if LeBron and the Los Angeles Lakers won the championship. If you were my counterparty in the DLC or the Bitcoin smart contract, uh, we could build one together that says, okay, Chris, you get um, one Bitcoin if LeBron and the Los Angeles Lakers win. Uh, Kevin, you get one Bitcoin if the New York Knicks win. We wait for the Oracle to uh, publish its attestations for who actually won the uh, who actually won the NBA Finals. And once we have those attestations, uh, the the blockchain will automatically send funds to the wallet of the of the winner. So uh, this was not previously possible on Bitcoin, uh, the Oracle stuff or the DLC stuff um, before Taj came along and invented this technology. And um, that it, it is fundamentally new. Um, new new technology that's available to us in the Bitcoin space. And, you know, my company, SuredBits, has been uh, kind of um, one of the leaders in the ecosystem for building out the infrastructure to do these things. And, you know, we're still in very much early days where we're at right now with discrete log contracts, but they are gaining more popularity and we're seeing more people interested in them on, on a daily basis. And you can see, uh, um, you know, my Twitter stream for people I've been betting, or I did a bunch of Super Bowl DLCs this year too. Uh, I should have I remembered the Los Angeles Rams and Cincinnati Bengals as I had a lot of Bengals bags and that uh, that discrete log contract. So it uh, didn't work out for me too well there. But, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some when you're at evangelizing technology, I guess. Fair enough. Um, so so what role, I guess, is SureBits playing in building out this DLC spec? How yeah. do you guys fit in? Yeah, so we're, you know, we're contributors at the very... Um, foundational level to the specification. You know, the specification is just a bunch of uh, text documents we've put together with other teams in the discrete log contract ecosystem. 
specifying how wallets should interact with each other to build these discrete log contracts. Uh, with a discrete log contract, if you want to enter into one, you have to have a wallet that knows how to speak the discrete log contract language, so to speak. Um, you have to understand the protocol that backs a discrete log contract, similar to the Lightning ecosystem, where you need a Lightning wallet that knows how to speak the Lightning network to transact with people on the Lightning network. So same kind of principle applies here. And then with the specification, you know, the Lightning network has an open source specification backing it uh, that a bunch of teams contribute to. Well, it's the same thing over here in the discrete log contract world where we have a bunch of teams contributing to the DLC uh, specification. Um, DLCs are relatively new. Uh, compared to the Lightning Network, uh, the open source specification kind of came about in uh, I think late 2020, early 2021, if I, uh, my memory serves me correctly. So, you know, we the, the spec's been around about a year, year and a half now. So, uh, you know, we're, we're still in early days and laying the infrastructure, so to speak, to make it easier for users to get their hands on these uh, discrete log contract wallets. Right. Are there any wallets today that enable uh, DLCs like that support this functionality today? Uh, yeah, so we, we have a wallet. Um, you can download it at shirtbits.com slash Bitcoin S, um, Bitcoin dash S, or you can un install it from the Umbral app store. If you're an Umbral user, you, it's called uh, the Shirtbits wallet on uh, the Umbral app store. And then once you have these wallets, you can go find a person to build a DLC with. I know I'm happy to build one with you uh, as your first one if you DM me on Twitter. Uh, and that's um, th that's how you get your hands on this stuff. You know, we're working to package the wallet software up into more user-friendly formats, but, you know, it's a it, it just takes time to refine these things and get everything right and uh, package it up into a nice end user product that uh, anybody can use. And we're not we're not quite there yet. We're kind of targeting the more um, hardcore like tech evangelist crowd right now and getting feedback from them and fixing bugs as well. Mm, okay. So if if this is available on Umbral, does that mean it's also compatible with the Lightning Network today? Uh, so discrete log contracts are not on the Lightning Network today. Um, that is a goal of ours to get them on the Lightning Network, but that just takes a lot of elbow grease. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, kind of principles about uh, Bitcoin or blockchain development in general is you've always got to get things working on the base layer before you can lift it up into the Lightning Network. If, if it doesn't work on layer one, it sure as heck won't work on layer two, is like mm -hmm. how, to, how to best think about it. And so we're still refining uh, layer one, making sure we sand off all the rough edges uh, that are, are that exist in the DLC ecosystem. And then we're gonna bring it up to layer two and get it working inside of Lightning channels. Um, you can think of, yeah, you, you would have a DLC inside of a Lightning channel is how to think about it conceptually, but maybe, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> how do you how do you go through that thought process of figuring out whether or not it's working well enough on layer one to then bring it to layer two? Like, what are some of those checkpoints that you're going to be looking for to see whether or not it's ready for layer two? Well, I think I think the first thing is uh, you know can you easily build DLCs between layer one wallets without. Uh, you know, running into bugs along the way. And, you know, we're still finding bugs uh, today and fixing them as fast as we find them. But you want to make sure that the uh, the software that runs the uh, layer one wallet is stable and uh, 
as bug free as possible before thinking about adding in a new um, a new network, which introduces even more complexity. It's like the the idea behind the, you know the, the software engineering principle behind this is like you know bite off the smallest thing possible you can, make sure that thing works really well. And then go and you know take another bite at the apple and add more functionality once you're confident that the smallest piece of functionality that you have works well and that's kind of the same um uh same principle that we're applying with a discrete log contract development is like we first started with the oracle which is very simple self-contained and doesn't even do anything with like a live network like bitcoin it, do it doesn't even know anything about bitcoin frankly um the oracle application so we got that working it worked well and then we're like okay well we got the oracle stuff working let's build a layer one wallet and that's kind of the step we're at right now um we've you know shipped the layer one wallet to you know technical users either on umbrella or people that are installing our desktop application and we're still iterating through um feedback that we've got from users uh along the way on our layer one wallet and fixing bugs that we see. So we're still in that uh, phase of let's get the layer one wallet working really well. Let's, you know, get, get feedback from users and see what uh, use cases they'd like to see built out. Um, and then think about how to incorporate those use cases that they're better off for use cases on layer two and lightning, or if they make sense uh, to be a use case that's available on layer one. So you start incorporating a little bit of customer feedback and uh, product feedback uh, at this stage as well as how, at least how we're thinking about it. What are some of those early use cases that users are looking for? Like, has anything surprised you in, I imagine betting and prediction yeah. markets and some of those, like we've seen a few of those develop on other blockchains in, in previous years, but are there any interesting use cases that people are coming to you saying, Hey, can you build this? And, and. You know. Yeah, I mean, I had a really interesting conversation last Friday uh, with a friend of mine about reoccurring subscriptions using DLCs. And like when I um, like first talked to him, I'm like, well, you're totally off base and like that doesn't make any sense and blah, blah, blah for technical reason X, Y and Z. Um, but the more and more I talked to him, I'm like, well, this actually might be possible. And it's a it's a problem that his uh, specific company has, too, with their customer base around. Um, it's hard to require user require user interaction when uh, doing a reoccurring payment. Like, for instance, when you sign up for your Netflix account, you give them your credit card information and you forget about it and they just bill you monthly. Right. You don't have to go to Netflix's site on the first day of every month and click OK. You can withdraw this money or they don't send you an invoice for you to pay, which is how it would work in the lightning ecosystem. and. Like that just sucks for user experience to um, require that interaction every time you need to get paid. And uh, DLCs actually can enable this like kind of um, ACH withdraw uh, like functionality from your Bitcoin wallet. It's like you can specify, I am going to allow Netflix to deduct $20 worth of Bitcoin from my wallet on the first of every month. And I don't have to you know, pre-approve this, I just will allow it to happen. And uh, that does, you know, I'm still like working through this in my head and, you know, consulting with other people in the technical community to make sure I'm not missing anything. But I actually do think that that would, will be possible. And that's like totally outside of the speculation gambling world that uh, um, 
where, where most people think the use cases are for DLCs. And they definitely are there. I'm not saying that they're, that, that, you know, I have a lot of sports betting people really interested in DLCs for uh, the reasons that uh, they don't have uh, bookie fees, uh, if this can truly be done in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. But um, that is was kind of a out of left field uh, use case that I didn't predict and I think would actually be possible. So very interesting. When you think about the the market of for DLCs and for oracles um, in the context of Bitcoin, how what do you think the biggest application is going to be? Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a financial market? Is it going to be like like if you look towards chains like Ethereum, you see Uniswap and you see stable coins and you see some of the really big players in that ecosystem are all centered around financial tools right now. Do you think that that's the same in Bitcoin? Um, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't know. There, there is going back to, you know, our conversation, uh, about censorship resisted financial markets. The reason I think those products are so successful on those other chains is because of the market being hosted directly on the chain in a censorship resistant fashion. And we don't have that in Bitcoin today. And I don't think we'll have it for the foreseeable future. I'm trying to influence the culture around Bitcoin developers to think about this problem and realize it's one worth solving, but uh, we're, we're not there today. So um, I think it, you know, if I, if I had to, you know, guess what market's gonna be most uh, prevalent with DLCs, I would guess sports betting right now. That's the people that are reaching out to me and wanting to try this stuff out. I've been, you know, really surprised about how um, how technical some of these uh, sports betting folks are with running our software. Our software, I would say, is not easy to use for like a you know a normie user that just you know wants to read about Bitcoin and doesn't have a serious technical background. We're working to improve that, but that's just where we're at today. And these sports betters still figure out how to run our software with um, surprising uh, technical uh, adeptness, I guess I would say. So I've been really encouraged by those guys. And I guess it kind of shows that they have a lot of motivation to do this stuff. They're not going to give up after the, you know, if it doesn't work on the, you know, if it doesn't take 30 seconds to install it, they are willing to wait, you know, the hour it takes to sync our software to the Bitcoin network and start building these DLCs. And it really kind of shows some proof of work on their side of how interesting and innovative that they think this product is. So that's that's where I would guess at the moment is the sports betting world. Interesting. And, and what would be some of the reasons that the sports bettors are looking to Bitcoin now when they do have today alternatives in the, the fiat world, of course, but also there are sports betting applications on other chains. What is it that is not being solved today that they need Bitcoin for? You know, uh, the other chains uh, part I don't know if I have a good answer to the other chains part. Um, as far as like, why not use like a trad, uh, you know, sports betting site? It's the fees. Like this is what I hear over and over again is the uh, the, the fees that bookies charge them for the, the spread on the book is just too much. It's very expensive, especially for very large bets. And uh, with Bitcoin and discrete log contracts, you can go peer-to-peer uh, -peer and direct bet directly with your counterparty rather than having this middleman taking a fee every time that uh, you want to place a bet. Um, you know, I was quoted on the, you know, it's on the order of 5% of the actual outstanding bet is what a bookie can sometimes take in fees. So if you're betting, like, you know, let's say you're a big time better, you're betting a million bucks or something like that. 
that's like fifty thousand dollars in fees there, which is you know pretty uh, you know pretty outlandish. If uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy to me. I almost don't believe it because it seems like such a big fee along the way. But I'm not I'm not like super hooked into the sports betting world, and I guess I'm just trusting these guys that of what they're saying. So, do you have any experience in the sports betting world? Not much, no. But yeah. I get the idea of like eliminating the fees being a, being a huge draw. Do you think that like, would there still be a company in the middle in a Bitcoin DLC kind of world, uh, facilitating some of these peer to peer transactions? Well, that, that's a great question. And that's like why I, I go back again to the finance censorship resistant financial market stuff. It's like, how does, you know, Alice and Bob find each other to bet? And that's um, an open problem in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but it's actually solved in other uh, blockchain ecosystems like Ethereum, because you just go and trade against a smart contract directly on chain. The smart contract will always give you a price to trade against, and you can decide to you know submit an order or not to go 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 and trade. Um, you know, I, I think right now these, uh, um, I guess, the limitation of Bitcoin is going to have to be fulfilled by you know third party services where they post the offer for their bet and you can almost go see it like you see our oracles on the uh, oracle explorer you you see the oracle and then you see a list of like bets underneath the oracle and you can decide whether you want to take that bet or not take that bet and then you go and negotiate the bet or build the bitcoin transaction that represents the bet um between you and directly between you and your counterparty so you essentially would use something like the oracle explorer as a way to you know, browse what available bets there are to take. And then you go and like actually enter into the bet with the person, uh, him or herself. Right. Okay. So it's kind of a discovery tool to. Yeah, to exactly. That's a good on. way to put it. Interesting. Um, okay. So now we have a good understanding of oracles and DLCs. Um, I want to get into Schnorr signatures. I don't know enough about them. So I'd love to hear like a high-level explanation of what they are and how they are important in the context of oracles and DLCs. Yeah, so Schnorr signatures, um, well, okay, let, let's let's back up just a little bit here. Let's start with, um, you know, what signatures do Bit does Bitcoin have today? And like, why are Schnorr signatures uh, different from what Bitcoin already has? Um, Bitcoin has a type of signature called the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm or ECDSA for short. Um, this is not an ideal cryptographic algorithm to use because it has some embedded complexity in it. it the math itself isn't um, super clean to work with uh ECDSA signatures. And since the math isn't super clean, it makes it harder for people like me to reason about these ECDSA signatures in um, in applications that we're building or protocols that we're building like discrete log contracts or like the Lightning Network. We, um, we don't get as strong of security guarantees from ECDSA as we do with something like Schnorr. And the reason we get these guarantees from Schnorr is just frankly because it's simpler, it's easier to audit, it's um, yeah, it's easier to understand too in the context of a wider uh, cryptocurrency protocol that you're building and deploying. And that's what makes developers like myself super excited about Schnorr and glad it got included in the Taproot Network upgrade 
on the Bitcoin network. So now that um, that tool is available to people like me to build our applications off of, whereas previously before Taproot, we had to work with this ECDSA on old complex uh, digital signature algorithm, which was much harder to um, build off of and reason about. And that's why a lot of uh, Bitcoin developers are super excited about Schnorr. And um, we're gonna see you know more applications built using Schnorr in the future now that we have it available to us natively on the Bitcoin network. So does is that, it right? Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great that's a great high level um, explanation there. Is it right that the you know in in order to use Schnorr signatures, the, the wallet or the the application you're using has to uh, have Taproot enabled. It has to be has to be like talking the same language. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that that is exactly okay. that is exactly how you should think about it. Like you know, the nice thing about the Bitcoin network and Bitcoin developers in general is like we have this huge commitment to backwards compatibility in the network. We we never want to ship something that breaks an old feature. And let, like, let's just take a simple example of this. Like, let's just assume with um, like Taproot, we rip out all of the old ECDSA stuff that I was just, you know, complaining about and totally replace it with Schnorr. And, uh, you know, that might seem good on the face value just because you're like, oh yeah, we got a new feature that's objectively better. Chris, you were just talking about how great uh, Schnorr was before this, but well, that's not great because you now are forcing everybody to upgrade their wallet software across the entire ecosystem, uh, you know, by this specific day, Taproot Activation Day. And that's, uh, you know, very, that makes developers very angry when you ship these backwards incompatible changes. So um, alternatively, what we do in Bitcoin is like, we keep the old feature around, which is ECDSA and is commonly used today, and then add a new feature uh, like Schnorr. So if you want to do anything Schnorr related, you do need to opt in to upgrade your wallet to, you know, use the taproot features, but you can also just, you know, ignore it completely and just continue on your merry way with the old SegWit, um, wallets that use ECSA. And that's really up to the wallet developer to determine, um, if they want to use these new features or not. And also it's a product of their customer base asking for these new features, uh, you know, to uh, be supported in their new wallet so they can do cool, new, interesting things inside of it. So there's definitely, a, you know, a give and take there. Did I, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. Um, is, is the backwards, is backwards compatibility, is this unique to Bitcoin in the context of crypto assets that, that every single change is going to be backwards compatible? Um, I would say Bitcoin has a very strong commitment towards uh, backwards compatibility with the network, and that's not seen in many other uh, major cryptocurrencies. And this kind of gets into the whole soft fork versus hard fork debate that you, your um, your uh, listeners may have heard of before. And Bitcoin likes to only do soft forks or, or backwards compatible changes. And other cryptocurrency networks commonly like to do hard forks. And that is a backwards incompatible change for certain features on the network. And, um, you know, that's just, a, I, guess, I guess that's an ideological choice. The hard fork advocates would say it allows you to make upgrades cleaner and it forces people to upgrade. Maybe there's old features that are insecure in the old uh, um, blockchain. And, uh, 
Yeah, that, that, that would be their argument for why, why you should be doing hard forks. And I've already laid out why you should do soft forks and Bitcoin developers have chosen soft forks. I think wisely is um, Bitcoin is a very supposed to be the most conservative cryptocurrency network out there. Mm, interesting. Um, okay, so now that we have a good understanding of all DLCs, oracles and Ishinor signatures, um, what are some of the kind of future use cases for, for these technologies outside of the ones you've just described, like uh, the betting and, the, and uh, you know, predicting financial markets, anything else that you think um, listeners might find interesting? Well, I, I think um, with Schnorr specifically, you know, we're going to see a huge upgrade to Lightning Network at some point uh, to use um, point time lock contracts rather than hash time lock contracts or HTLCs is um, how payments are sent through the Lightning Network. In today's day and age, um, with Schnorr, we can upgrade to a new thing called PTLCs or point time lock contracts. And that um, going to the point of uh, talking about how Schnorr simplifies a lot of things, like this is an example of it, like Schnorr simplifies how payments will be sent across the Lightning Network and also allow you to build applications using those um using those PTLCs to enhance functionality on the Lightning Network. And us in the discrete law contract ecosystem are super excited about that because that's how we'll get DLCs up to the Lightning Network is we need the Schnorr capability. We don't need Schnorr on-chain actually to do DLCs. And the DLCs we're building today are not using Schnorr, but we will upgrade the DLC protocol to use Schnorr now that we have Taproot. And the Lightning Network will also upgrade to use uh, Schnorr when uh, they get enough developer bandwidth uh, to you know ship this feature, and uh, I I think um, Schnorr itself is going to be a, kind of like a renaissance for the Lightning Network, frankly, for application developers because you can just build all sorts of cool, interesting things um, like DLCs on Lightning uh, with with the Schnorr capability. Right now, I know I know there's at least one other team building uh, using DLCs today. That's Atomic Finance. We spoke about them uh, earlier before before we started this interview. Um, are there any other teams today that are kind of tackling this, this DLC problem and, and building using them today? Yeah, so a company uh, for all your Umbrella wallet users out there too, there's another company in Australia called Commit Network that's building uh, contracts for difference with DLCs. Uh, their Umbrel application is called Itchy Sats. I would recommend you go and download it and uh, you know kick the tires on it, see what you think of it. Uh, so the, they're over in Australia. One of our really good um, uh, specification contributors comes out of Crypto Garage over in Japan. And uh, it, his name's Thibaut and just has been a delight to work with over the years. Uh, building the actual you know protocol itself and he uh works on a rust implementation for discrete log contracts uh kind of under the uh spiral btc or you know rust i guess ecosystem umbrella and another like startup we are actually seeing just emerge now is called lava um they're actually building on top of the they're, they're here in the united states they're building on top of the rust dlc tech stack that i i just mentioned and uh you know they're, they're still getting their MVP together, and I think it's a little bit in flux still what the, what they're doing. So I, I can't speak to you know the product. I haven't touched and felt it myself yet. But they're another team we're seeing build on DLCs, and I think uh, you know 2020, uh, 2022 we'll keep seeing these uh, teams emerge. I guess on the Oracle side of things, um, 
a team received a grant from Chainlink to do Oracle stuff. It's called DLC.link. And the idea is just bring over all of the uh, Chainlink data feeds into the DLC ecosystem. So those can be used in you know our world too, uh, along with the Chainlink world as well. So those are some of the teams that are kind of kicking around the DLC space right now. Now is, if, if you bring over some of the feeds from Chainlink, are those feeds, are, are they financially incentivized, the people who are publishing those oracles to maintain the correct uh, outcomes for all the events? I actually, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how the engineering works behind the scenes for, you know, interacting with Chainlink oracles. You would have to ask those guys and uh, understand, um, you know, how all the puzzle pieces fit together, uh, so to speak. Um, one, one thing I forgot to mention earlier on the um, Oracle incentivation part, though, is like, I mean, you can just, you know, do a boring old software as a service contract for, you know, producing timely Oracle results, too. And, you know, we've seen some interest from teams that uh, require these uh, Oracle attestations at very specific points in time during the day, and they're willing to pay us to provide that service for them. And uh, that, that's a way you can uh, generate revenue if you um, are a reliable Oracle with, you know, the infrastructure set up to meet whatever SLAs that they have set out. So, um, yeah, just another way to make money, I guess, if you are interested. Yeah. What kind of uh, requirements would there be for someone to publish an Oracle? Like how how technical do you have to be to, to participate in that? Um, in, in this case, you'd have to be fairly technical. You'd have to know how to program. Um, the, the company in question requires them, uh, it requires the publishing of the Oracle at 8 a.m. UTC every like Friday and uh, they need another announcement posted. You know, there, there's just like some um, pro programmatic like requirements they have and also requirements around uptime. You need to make sure your service is up and, you know, just kind of boring old software uh, reliability stuff. And um, yeah, that, that, that's a market we're seeing emerge uh, in real time, frankly. Interesting. One, one thing you mentioned, I think it was the team in Australia you were just talking about, um, working on contract for difference, a, a contract for difference project. What exactly is that? And how, how does that tie into DLCs? Yeah, so uh, um, contracts for difference are kind of a, a financial derivative that's uh, used in TradFi. And um, you can bring any sort of financial derivative or instrument from TradFi into the discrete log contract ecosystem too. Um, a lot of people talk about using contracts for difference to make Bitcoin stable relative to a fixed amount of United States dollars. So for instance, um, I always want to know that I have $100 in Bitcoin in my wallet. And if the Bitcoin price goes up, I don't care. I just want my $100. And if the Bitcoin price goes down, I need to be given some more sats to make sure my $100 peg is uh, maintained for the duration of the DLC. And the financial engineering tool used to accomplish that is contracts for difference. And uh, your listeners, if they're curious, they can go on Investopedia and there's a great article on contracts for difference on Investopedia explaining the ins and outs of how they work. Interesting. And so do you think that this is going to be the way that stable coins appear on Bitcoin and maybe on Lightning through contracts for difference? Or is there another method? Well, I, I would nitpick you first off on the terminology. So like 
usually when people think of stable coins, they literally think of a token that represents one United States dollar, like Tether or USDC. This is not that. That is uh, what, what we're talking about here is a derivative engineered to give you $100 in Bitcoin, keyword in Bitcoin, uh, at the end of the D- DLC. So, um, but that definitely is possible. And that's what the Itchy Sats team is doing. And uh, it's, you know, the, the feedback that we get for where this is valuable is, you know, uh, developing countries where they don't want Bitcoin's price volatility because Bitcoin's price volatility is crazy. And if you're putting your entire life savings in Bitcoin and are counting on feeding your kids the next day with this stuff, you don't want that uh, that risk in your you know in, in your digital wallet. So the way you can hedge that risk is using these contracts for difference, and that gives you um, that that gives you the ability to know that you will always have a fixed amount of Bitcoin relative to United States dollars when the when the DLC expires. And I said a lot of words there. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it did. I actually had Alex Gladstein on the show a little while ago. And he was talking about some of the bounties that he's working on with Strike. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is stabilizing Bitcoin on Lightning. And he, he mentioned in, in our conversation that there were these two approaches. The asset approach yes. of creating an actual coin or a token that represents a stable coin. And then the contract approach where there is no you know, additional token involved. You're just using CFDs um, to to stabilize the value. Um, I, I guess, which which do you think is the optimal strategy long-term? I don't know if that's the right word, but how do you see these two strategies evolving over time? Well, um, I think they both have their place, I guess. I don't think, um, so like, yeah, let, let's let's talk about the downsides of both of them, right? And sure. then I think this is the, the uh, you know, the, the trade-off that you need to pick, you know, pick your poison essentially at the end of the day, um, you know, with a token, you're trusting some custodian somewhere to give you the dollars back at the end of the day, you know, pretty simple. You're like, I don't know if they'll run away with the money or not. And uh, I'm trusting Tether to, you know, have this backing. And that's the way it is, right? You're just trusting them, right? Uh, with contracts for difference, there's a different trade-off. Um, as if Bitcoin gets super volatile and the price is specifically moving downwards, um, that means the person that does not, the, the person that wants stability needs to be paid more and more and more Satoshis to maintain the peg as uh, Bitcoin price moves downwards. And eventually, if Bitcoin price, you know, say, let's say it goes to zero, well, you're not going to be able to maintain the peg because, well, the underlying collateral that you're using for the derivative is worthless. You can't, you can't, you know, fix no, no matter how many Satoshis in the world you have, you can't pay $100 if Satoshis are fundamentally worthless. And uh, that's a super extreme example. But, you know, Bitcoin is a volatile asset. So um, if Bitcoin, you know, was to, say, take a haircut of 50% tomorrow, that peg may break and you may have to um, take a haircut on the $100 that you thought you were stabilizing. And that's the trade off in the contracts for difference world. If Bitcoin price moves upwards, you're always guaranteed to have stability. Um, But if Bitcoin price moves downwards, especially drastically, uh, the relationship between how strong the peg is, is, um, is relative to how much collateral the uh, 
person put into the DLC to stabilize the peg. And um, that ho hopefully I got the idea across there. I, I'm happy to yeah. help clarify if I, if I didn't. No, that's really good. Um, so with stable coins now or stabilized, whether it's a contract approach or an asset approach, how important do you think that is having those building blocks there on Bitcoin and on Lightning to enable some of the applications we talked about today? Because like for the simple example of sports betting, I could see a sports better saying, listen, I want to bet on the NBA finals. I don't want to bet on the NBA finals and the price of Bitcoin yeah. by the time the NBA finals happen. Um, so I could see that. Are, are there any other applications where you think like, it's very important that we have something stable because people may not want that exposure to, to Bitcoin's volatility? Well, I think it's like a, you know, a case by case judgment. And I'm not here to like, say it's right or wrong. Like if you go talk to some of the ardent Bitcoin maxis, they think that that's like bad because I don't know, Bitcoin, who cares about Bitcoin's price volatility? And, you know, I, I, I really do think that that's a choice for each user to make. And my job is to just give them the tools to make that choice. And that's simply the problem that I'm trying to solve is like make that tool available for them to choose from if they so wish. If they don't want to choose it, that's totally OK, too. And, um, you know, I just want to expand Bitcoin's capabilities uh, provide, pro by providing more tools at the end of the day for users to, um, you know, do whatever specific thing they want to do. And uh, I think that will make more Bitcoin more valuable as a currency at the end of the day is if we have more tools for users to reach for, to use for their given application. And that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of a non-answer, but that's how I think about it, I guess. That's fair. Um, because I think you're right. There's there's still, there's a group of people, I think, in, in the crypto space still that don't quite understand that Bitcoin is building all these different tools to enable new things to happen on Bitcoin. Um, there's there's definitely still a misconception in the broader crypto ecosystem that Bitcoin is digital gold or yes. it's like a digital rock, doesn't do anything. You just hold it. You just kind of sit there and it's not exciting. It's not interesting. Like there's definitely that narrative still very prevalent in, in other aspects of crypto. Um, what do you say to those people who maybe haven't realized that you can do a lot of stuff on Bitcoin and that you're, you can do more and more things on Bitcoin over time because people are still innovating on Bitcoin and, and it's just the use cases are expanding. How do you, how do you relay that to them? Well, I, I do think it, you know, takes time to change narratives and, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm going to add, I, I guess I still am an advocate for the digital gold narrative, but you know, gold can be used and all uh, used as collateral and all sorts of things. So, I mean, I think the key thing is like, let's not sell ourselves short with what's possible. It's like Bitcoin can be digital gold and it can be used to, you know, build interesting applications with, or can be used to bet with, or can be used to build financial derivatives with. It, it doesn't have to just be one or the other. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes like Bitcoiners themselves are the ones that are, you know, promulgating that narrative. And until Bitcoiners themselves don't, uh, you know, broaden, I mean, I guess until Bitcoiners themselves broaden their uh, mindset for what is possible with Bitcoin, uh, I don't think anybody else in the wider cryptocurrency ecosystem is going to is going to get it. So, you know, my job is to sell to Bitcoiners, get them trying out these applications and get build something that they like and can use easily 
And I think the rest of it will be done itself. I think, you know, Bitcoin Twitter will, if, if it's good, you know, Bitcoin Twitter will do the rest of the selling for you is um, at least how, wh where my mind's at currently with this stuff. Right. So when we think about these smart contract applications for Bitcoin in the context of Bitcoin's addressable market, um, how impactful are they? Because you have the digital gold proponents or the, the people who like to use digital gold as a comparison point often look to uh, the market value of all gold. And they say, you know, it's about 10 trillion. That's, yeah. that's kind of been the benchmark in Bitcoin that we've said. Digital gold or gold is a $10 trillion market. Bitcoin can do that better. Therefore, Bitcoin should be worth 10 trillion or more. Um, if you start to layer in some of these other smart contract applications, what, how do you, how do you determine how large of a market that is and how impactful that could be to Bitcoin, the asset? I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a formula or anything for doing that, but I, I, I just would, what I would tell your listeners is like, you know, these things are additive, right? We can be digital gold and we could be, you know, a, a platform to settle, you know, international finance as well. And it's not like one detracts from the other. It's like, you know, let's let's have our cake and eat it too. Let's not just, you know, uh, limit ourselves for what, what is possible here. I think the digital gold stuff is already well on its way to happening. And we can frankly stop talking about it because I think everybody's on board with that. I mean, you know, I turn on CNBC and it seems like they're talking about that. You know, when you've got that far, uh, you know, everybody's heard the message. Uh, the new message needs to be, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold and it's going to be the neutral, you know, reserve currency for the entire world. And for us to get to that neutral settlement currency for the entire world, we need to have basic financial tools available for people to use on top of Bitcoin, like, you know, just uh, futures contracts, for instance, forward contracts, options contracts, contracts for difference. Like these are all just tools that, um, you know, people in TradFi have available to them easily, easily and ready to use to hedge whatever volatility or exposure that they want to. And um, one of the limitations of Bitcoin is um, until now, you know, these weren't available to you. And that's the message that we need to start getting out and saying, like, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold, but it's so much more as well. And here's why. And, uh, you know, I, I would encourage Bitcoiners to, you know, start thinking in that mindset because gold's only $10 trillion too. Like, you know, hey, we're already one tenth of the way there. Maybe before you know it, we'll actually get there. And then what's the next thing, right? Like, do we want to settle for just the $10 trillion market or do we want to go on and see like, you know, what is uh, you know, the next big thing that we can go eat and, uh, you know, put into our like domain of problems that we're solving. So um, yeah. yeah, that's how I think about it. No, well said. Um, I, I agree. I think that's that's exactly why I first got so excited about Lightning was that I could see it enable new things without taking away from Bitcoin's ability to be yes. the store of value. And it almost just seems to me like there's dozens of different markets, maybe even hundreds that I, I just haven't thought of, but there's so many different markets that are like up for grabs or ready for disruption and where Bitcoin can be a tool to disrupt, uh, like remittances could be one. Yes. Payments could be one. Sports betting could be one. There's all sorts of these markets that, you know, you start to add them up and you start to estimate how big they are individually. And many are in the billions or tens of billions, hundreds of billions, sometimes trillions of dollars. Uh, and I just see, see Bitcoin, it's already got this 
feature set that makes it better than gold. And it can now do all these other things. And yes, like, well, let's start building these other things. Cause like, wow, imagine how much bigger this market could be if we could, and how much more convenient it would be if we could use the same currency, the same yeah. pro product and the same technology we're using to store our wealth, to make payments, to bet, to send remittances, to do it. Like we don't have to use, you know, uh, checks for one thing. We don't have to use bank wires for another thing. We don't have yeah. to use cash for one thing. We don't have to use, you know, some, some Enter your credit card on every site you sign up for. And yeah. like, you know, it, it's just so much like friction in the existing ecosystem. And like, hopefully we can, you know, kill that friction and uh, use Bitcoin to, you know, kind of be this, you know, one universal standard is like, I think where we all want to get to uh, yeah. across the entire world, you know, the neutral settlement currency for international finance, I think is something, you know, I, I should have looked up the market cap for that before jumping on this call. But, you know, I think that's in like the maybe pushing $100 trillion or something like that in terms of market cap. But uh, so I, I think like, you know, Bitcoiners sometimes sell sell Bitcoin a little bit short with the digital gold stuff because, you know, we're we're approaching digital gold quickly. And like for me as an old Bitcoiner, I never really thought we would get this far, but we're here. And now it's time to, you know, reset our sites for the objectives that we want to complete. We don't want to, you know, not be digital gold, but let's be digital gold and this and that and, you know, add to the uh, total value of Bitcoin by you know, solving multiple problems that the uh, world has uh, today. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Let's finish this off with um, maybe some smart contracts that, or, or some technologies that you're excited about in Bitcoin that are unrelated to the ones we talked about today. Is there anything in particular that, that you think is a really exciting innovation or, or maybe even just a potential innovation, something people are talking about that if implemented into Bitcoin could be valuable or interesting well i i think the um the any prev out which is a technical proposal to change bitcoin is really interesting in the context of dlcs it starts to get us a little bit closer to um being able to fill us, uh, facilitate these financial censorship resistant financial markets that i was talking about earlier on this call so any prev out is definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, op check template verifies another proposal to upgrade the Bitcoin network. Um, that really helps out in multi-oracle DLCs. So I, I'm really kind of interested to see that get, or possibly see that get in, into Bitcoin. And that also enables like covenants. You can uh, put spending conditions on the transaction uh, for which you're, you know, I, I guess puts restrictions on the transaction that's spending one of your Bitcoin addresses. So you can make sure that it doesn't go off to some hackers in Russia, but rather can just go into another address you control or your Coinbase account or what, 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 whatever have you. Um, I think, you know, privacy is really becoming a hot topic these days, especially with geopolitical um, unrest that's going on and uh, how easy it is to identify people's Bitcoin holdings and I don't have a specific uh, proposal to shill on this call, but I do think that that's a problem that, I mean, Bitcoiners have known about for a very long time and um, we need you know to keep thinking about how to solve it because uh, it, it, it is a problem in my opinion. And uh, unfortunately it'll probably, you know, ha end up in uh, 
end up in uh, bad things happening to people in certain jurisdictions because of uh, how transparent Bitcoin is. And in the West, you know, commonly uh, um, we celebrate some of these, you know, seizures of Bitcoin because, you know, the Bitcoins were stolen in the first place. Uh, and, you know, maybe some certain people are going to jail, but in other parts of the world, you know, I don't think people are going to jail. They may be going somewhere else. And uh, um, I don't think that's something we want to, uh, you know, we, we want to have these privacy tools available to people, especially under very oppressive uh, uh, regimes for um, obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, this was an incredible conversation. Really enjoyed uh, hearing all about the different technologies at play here and smart contract functionality on Bitcoin. Um, real quick, where can people go to find out more about you and SuredBits? Yeah, so uh, SuredBits is on Twitter, twitter.com slash S-U-R-E-D-B-I-T-S. Um, I am Chris underscore Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T underscore five on Twitter. And that's the best place to reach me. Uh, you know, if you want to do a DLC with me or ask me questions, uh, reach out to me on Twitter and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, we also have a telegram group t.me slash slash shirtbits, um, spelled the same way as, as the company name. And, uh, if you have questions, you guys can join, uh, our company telegram too, and start dropping them in there and I'll answer you, uh, as soon as I get some bandwidth available to me to do so. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I'm really excited about what you guys are building and about testing out some of the functionality. I'll go check out. Oh, the, uh... one, one other thing. If any of your listeners are at Bitcoin 2022, I think uh, we're going to be doing some DLC betting at the uh, uh, gaming portion of Bitcoin 2022. So I'd love to meet your listeners in person. Come say hi. And uh, we'd like to show you in person how this stuff works, answer your questions and get you betting on some of the gaming events going on down there at Bitcoin 2022. That's awesome. Very cool stuff. And I, I can't wait to try it out. I'm going to try it out myself, uh, figure out how to set up an Oracle and, 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 uh, yeah, use DLCs. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it though. Thanks cool. again for taking the time and, uh, talk to you soon. Yep. See ya. See ya. Welcome to the lightning round presented by Voltage. Voltage is the industry leading provider of Bitcoin and lightning node infrastructure. In fact, many of your favorite apps and services already use Voltage to scale their business quickly and easily without maintenance. Voltage also offers an inbound liquidity product called Flow, which helps you as a node operator get inbound liquidity easily. Overall, Voltage is creating the industry standard suite of non-custodial products, helping brands, engineers, and startups scale. To learn more about Voltage, visit voltage.cloud. Okay, I don't even know where to start with the lightning round because you guys shattered all records this week. I've received 30 messages from 19 supporters and have received over 64,000 sats in the last seven days. Thank you all for sending in sats, comments, and questions. Real quick, we'll run through the top five supporters. Peter comes in at number one with 24,500 sats sent in. Chad Farrow comes in number two, 16,234. Mary Oscar third with 9,311. Y comes in at fourth with 3,929 sats, and Niall comes in fifth with 1,568 sats. Guys, enormous numbers here. These are, it's kind of surreal to see because 
This, some of these numbers are bigger than the monthly sats that I received early on as I was starting this show. Uh, so thank you to everyone sending in sats. Let's go through some of the questions now from the last couple of days since the last episode. Uh, we have Mary Oscar who sent in a comment that says, the value for value message is sounding much better now. Keep pushing, no tips. I appreciate the kind words from uh, Oscar. I know he's been trying to get me to uh, refine the value for value pitch on this show. Uh, and you're right, Oscar, it is definitely working. Um, so thank you for sending in the comment and the sats. Uh, Peter sent in a comment with his 24,500 sats that said, enjoyed Adam Curry, thanks Kevin. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I appreciate you sending in the sats. Um, we have Y who sends in a handful of messages, the last of which says, do not read all of my comments out loud. Just take anything that sounds interesting, which of course means that I have to read every single one of your comments out loud. Uh, Y sent in a comment that just says, Tony Robbins. He sent in another that says, LOL. Another that says communicating value. Another that says support the show and support the Bitcoin circular economy at the same time. That's one I can get behind for sure. Um, and then another comment that says, having advertisers understand that being in the relationship with an audience and not just breaking in and yelling a message is where you wanna be. Uh, somewhere in my mind, a dim light bulb just clicked on this episode is shaping up nicely. Uh, yeah, Adam Curry had a ton of insight. I really enjoyed chatting with him. Um, if you guys have not seen that episode, go, go check it out. It's quickly becoming one of the most popular shows I've done. And he's got all sorts of these insights all through the episodes, about two hours long. Why um, also sent in another message that said, sounds familiar in response to uh, the 14 minute mark of episode 23. And it says, Keep building the loop, Kevin. I will. Thank you for sending in the sats. Thank you for all the questions. And I apologize for reading all of them out loud, uh, even though you told me not to. <laughs> um, Chad Farrow says, great episode with Adam Curry and sent in 10,126 sats. Thank you, Chad. Huge boost. Um, and that's all the comments we got in in the last day or two, I believe. Uh, Niall says awesome as well uh, on episode 23 and uh, I believe that's it. I may I haven't missed any. <laughs> There's a lot to get through but we got them all. Um, there were many other comments that came in previously in the last four or five days but I got to them in the last episode. Um, so thank you all for sending in comments, questions, sats. Uh, I look forward to seeing them all from this episode. Uh, if you guys have questions about how DLCs work, how oracles work, uh, anything that wasn't answered for you, anything you'd like to ask Chris, send it in. Can't wait to see it, and I'll see you guys in a few days.